Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live and our sister podcast, FitLab Pittsburgh, firmly believe that movement should be treated as a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement really is part of what makes your life complete. That's why with Moving to Live, we seek out a wide variety of people involved in the movement professions. And today we're fortunate enough to have somebody who emphasizes movement with her four-legged friends or dogs. We're with Dr. Libby Fort, and before we start the podcast in the interview, I need to apologize in advance throughout the podcast. I continued to call her business Wandering Dog. It is not Wandering Dog, it's Wander Dog, and they have a great business idea to make your dogs have the best opportunity to be happy, successful, active, and to protect them against injuries. So I think you'll enjoy this upcoming interview with Dr. Fort. One of my main goals with Moving to Live is to break down knowledge silos so people who are involved in the movement field, whether it's with two-legged animals or four-legged animals, are able to get information to encourage them to move. I want people to understand the importance of moving not only with themselves and with their pets. And For those of you who follow me on social media, you know that my dogs are a main part of my movement practice with my running, walking, and hiking with them. Some of the ways that we find our guests is word of mouth, or we see really cool pictures on Instagram or Facebook. And I believe I saw today's guests' posts on Instagram, and I thought that's a really neat idea. We're here with Dr. Libby Fort, who is a doctor of veterinary medicine, and she has a business that is teaching first aid and instructing people about first aid with their dogs because she believes that dogs should be a part of the movement lifestyle outside. Dr. Fort, thanks for taking time to join Moving to Live. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm super excited. And I know the first thing I always like to ask people that I interview for Moving to Live is you meet somebody, you're on an elevator, and they say, what do you do? What's your kind of canned 30-second elevator speech? Well, uh, so we are a canine wilderness first aid company. 
Um, dogs get into everything. So we teach you how to be prepared while exploring the great outdoors with your canine companion. So that is our tagline. <laughs> and I know we're going to get into how you got into that, but I think the most important thing about moving to live is the stories of the people we interview because it puts kind of a name to a face and the story makes people recognize that even if somebody looks well put together or they have this phenomenal business, there's always a story behind it and the struggles that it took to get there. So I'm curious if you're doing something with dogs and with canine first aid and wilderness survival, you're clearly right now a mover. And if you people follow you on social media, they'll see lots of pictures of you with your dogs. But growing up, were you a mover? And kind of as a starting point of that, were your parents or your family movers? Or was it something where they said, uh, you know, get out the door and don't come back until dinner time? <laughs> Oh gosh, well, combination of um, combination of the two, really. So my parents, my dad was a swimmer. Uh, my mom swam laps, you know, not competitively. And then, so therefore, all three of my older brothers swam, and I swam. We essentially spent our entire childhood at the pool, um, waking up early in the morning on the summers to practice, and then going back in the evening for a second practice. Um, and then when we weren't at swim practice, um, we were out on our lake, you know kneeboarding, jet skiing, paddle. So we were essentially, we, you know, pretty, we're always in the water essentially. So, and then, yeah, so basically a combination of the two competitive sports and just being outside all day long in the summers. So. And I know swimming is something that has the reputation for people either love it as they get older or they get what they call black line fever. And I was fortunate enough to get my doctorate at Auburn. And I know many people, once they finish swimming, they were like, yeah, I'm done with that. I don't want to swim. I don't want to see the pool again. And I know from researching you and from the questionnaire you filled out that you also were an equestrian. At what point did you make the decision of saying, you know, I don't want to keep pushing it with swimming because swimming is one of those sports that either you have to give it a lot if you want to be very successful, you kind of got to say, okay, I, I need to branch out and do other things. Oh yeah. No, great question. Um, black line fever. I love that. You know, um, that's perfect. I never heard that. That's perfect. Um, but yeah, essentially, um, to be honest, I wasn't, when I hit my sophomore year in high school, I was working my butt off, but not really getting a whole lot faster. Um, I was always, I was a distant swimmer. So I was like the first one in and the last one out, the sprinters always got to go home early. <laughs> So, um, yeah, and my coach was an endurance swimmer. Um, he, he's actually essentially a badass. I hope I can say that, but he did a, a quintuplet Ironman, I think it's what it's called. And, you know, so endurance is his thing. And so he was hard on me, thankfully. So, um, but I just wasn't getting any faster. And I don't know if that, you know, some, some girls do slow down with age and puberty and that's, that was me. And my first love was always horses, to be honest. So it was kind of a, luckily my parents were supportive and, you know, if I wanted to do the equestrian thing, that was going to take 100% of my commitment if I wanted to do it well. So I essentially, the last couple years of high school and the first couple years of college, um, devoted all my time to my equestrian hobbies, I guess you could say. So, um, so yeah, so that's essentially what happened is I just wasn't getting any faster. I always thought I would swim in college, um, but I wasn't going to make it to a Big Ten school. And I'm like that all or nothing mentality. Like, if I, gosh, and it's a bad way to look at it, but I was like, well, if I can't swim Big Ten, I just want to stick to my horses essentially. So, um, so that's kind of how that came about. But. And for our listeners who are not familiar with equestrian, I know there's a variety of dis different disciplines. What was your discipline and how did you get to the point where you realized, okay, I can't go any farther with this? 
So yeah, so I did three day eventing, which is um, essentially like a horsey triathlon. It's uh, the first day is dressage, second day is cross country, the third day is stadium jumping. Um, and I had a fantastic horse. Um, I was blessed. She was awesome. I got her when I was uh, probably 17, I think. Um, so she was supposed to be my horse to take me all the way. And, um, she developed some health issues. Um, so she developed a, a syndrome called kissing spine syndrome, which caused excruciating back pain. Um, and you know, we, we worked with her, we did a lot of, you know, different, you know, I'm sure you know a lot about different muscle exercises to strengthen her back, but essentially she wasn't able to take me to the level I wanted to go to. And that was around the time where I was getting into college, trying to get my grades, you know, need obviously needed good grades to get into vet school. So my studies kind of, it was just, it was a good transition because it, the timing worked out and, um, I really needed to focus my concentrate, like 100% concentration on my studies to, you know, get into vet school. So her health issues, the combination of her health issues, and that is what, you know, got me out of the equestrian world, I guess. So. And I know one of the things that I was very surprised to learn when I went to undergrad, I was an athletic training major and I forget which of my professors was, but a lot of what we know about sports medicine and treatment that in humans is the same thing is done actually for horses. And I know for some of the expensive race horses, and I would imagine horses that do three-day events, it's similar. A lot of the treatments that they get are similar to what an athlete or somebody who goes to physical therapy would get. Oh yeah, probably so. Um, I, I'm trying to remember everything we did for her. We did, you know, multiple, we did lots of joint injections, um, there was this machine. I don't really under, at the time I didn't really understand it. The, there was a, we called it a P3 machine. It was basically electromagnetic um, therapy. Tried that. We tried different magnetic blankets. I'm assuming that's what you guys did for humans. Um, all the shockwave therapy. Um, and yeah, I think I'm trying to. I'm drawing a blank right now, but I'm, I'm assuming that's similar. Yeah. That and I mean I know the horses frequently do some of their training on underwater treadmills, and now that's something that humans use too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we didn't we didn't have access to that at the time, but yeah, I did a summer down in Ocala where they did some underwater treadmill work, and yeah, it's quite the production. So, so. And I'm curious. Also, you said that the, the time came. I mean, basically the the moons collided or came together, not necessarily all in a good way with the injuries to your horse, but what was it that made you decide when you were in high school, uh, I want to go to vet school. I know my roommate for three years in college went to vet school and it was something he came in when I first met him. He's like, I'm going to be a vet. I know it's much more difficult to get into vet school than it is to get into human medical school because there aren't that many. And then I also know that there are vet schools that have specialties for different things. And some people who want to be vets say, well, I'm not going to go to a swine school or I'm not going to go to a bovine school. I'm only going to go to this school, this school, or this school. So they constrain it even closer. So I guess a two-part question is when or how the interest in becoming a vet? And then second of all, once you were finishing up your undergrad and starting to apply to veterinary schools, were you one of those people who said, I'll go to this school, this school, and this school, but these other schools I'm not going to go to because the, they're known for specialties and certain things. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of, I was always an animal person. Like I was that kid, you know, I'm more extroverted now, but when I was younger, I was highly introverted. I was hanging out with the cat or the dog at the parties, you know? Um, so I was always that kid. My parents were probably worried about me. Um, but I always knew I was going to be a vet as a, as a, as a small child. And then funny story, I think I was around 16 
And I, my good family friend who is a veterinarian um, actually talked me out of it. So she told me not to go. So then I kind of, um, you know, when I went off to college the first couple of years, I actually was a communications major, which um, essentially I just partied the whole time, which is awful. And then um, this, you know, so she talked me out of it. I kind of changed the course and then, you know, I kind of just, as I, I, I went through this communications major, I just realized, I, re- I was like, you know, that was always my calling and that's always, you know, what I wanted to do. So one day I just called my dad. I was like, you know what, dad, screw it. I'm just going to, you know, start all over, start taking the sciences and I'm, you know, going to, you know, pursue veterinary medicine. So, um, so I kind of got away from it and then came back to it later. Um, and glad I did. And then when choosing, when choosing a college, I always thought I would be an equine vet, to be honest, um, which is not the case. I, I'm a small animal. Um, I always thought I'd be an equine veterinarian um, and essentially decided that, and that's kind of where deciding, and, I, and for a while there too, a mixed animal, because I worked on the dairy farm in undergrad. Um, I, I really loved, you know, you know, you know, large animal medicine. So essentially I was thinking maybe mixed animal, if not equine veterinarian. So I was considering the large animal colleges like Kansas State and Oklahoma State. Um, I essentially applied to Oklahoma State and U of I because um, I'm U of I, I'm an Illinois resident. And then um, didn't get into U of I, but got into Oklahoma State. So went there. So I'm um, so glad it happened that way because I met fantastic people at Oklahoma State and met my, you know, best friends, best friends in my veterinary school class. So so yeah, so that's kind of how that all came about. So, and I think what would be interesting to the listeners is, I was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to have my first Labrador tore her cranial cruciate ligament, and yeah. I still remember going to a specialty vet, which at that point in time, this was about ten or eleven years ago. I never knew specialty vets existed. Mm-hmm. I just thought you went to a vet. Um, and they did mixed animals. And I still remember when he found out I was an exercise physiologist and an athletic trainer, his light, his eyes lit up and he got the model of the, uh, the, the dog's knee and he starts showing me what she did and how he's going to repair it. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty neat. And it, I, we had a successful outcome. And then as I was mentioning before we recorded, I was, I say fortunate enough because she was a great dog, fortunate enough to have a dog that had epilepsy and idiopathic uh, idiopathic epilepsy and inflammatory bowel syndrome. And then I learned that there are actually neurologists for animals and there are internal medicine doctors for animals and there are cancer specialists. And you kind of alluded to that too. So if you could talk a little bit about what it actually takes to be a vet and how one says I'm a small animal vet or I'm a, a bovine vet or I'm a mixed animal, because I know you go to school for four years, but what exactly do you do? And is that then is there additional training depending on what you want to do? Yeah. So, yeah, it's essentially um, four years of undergrad and then four years of veterinary school. Veterinarians are a little bit different. And then the last year, um, you have clinical rotations. And then essentially, the, the difference in lies in that we are, quote unquote, as they say, practice ready after eight years of school. So we're not required to do residencies and internships. Um, you know, I think veterinary medicine as a whole is starting to go more towards that, you know, that push for their new grads to take to do an internship. Um, But I just went out and started in private practice. And um, to be perfectly honest, um, I, for me, it was more of a timing, a time, a timing thing where I was just ready to get out and get practicing um, and come back home and um, get out of academia for a little bit. 
you know, I always, I always say, well, if I, if I want to go back to a specialty, I can, but yeah, essentially whatever specialty and most of those kids come into vet school with that interest already in mind where, because I was thinking I was going to do mixed animal, mixed animal is yes, it's more general practice versus a specialty in most regards. Um, so I had already gone in with that, you know, broad general practice mindset. Um, you know, I, 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 I think, and, and, you know, with, with, um, becoming a specialist, then yes, it's going to require several, depending on the specialty, several years of an internship, several years of a residency, and then you take your boards and then you're boarded in that specialty. Um, so it's always something I think about, you know, and always something I could go back to, but in all practicality, don't know if I will, because I do like general medicine. Um, it's kind of nice, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's, Oh gosh, how do I say this cautiously? There's, you know, there's a, there's like, you know, the, the standard of care is, is absolutely different, you know, in general practice versus a, like going to the university. Um, but I do like the hands-on and being, being able to do like the different surgeries and then the preventative medicine and then dabbling in ultrasound versus doing that one thing. And, um, and if, when in doubt, I always refer, you know, refer to a specialist because that's just good medicine. Um, but I just like, I like being able to dabble in a little bit of everything, especially for those owners where money is a huge issue and they can't afford a referral. Um, then you kind of just have to get scrappy and just figure out the best solution for that particular pet. And that, I do love that challenging aspect of practicing medicine is figuring out how to work with all the different owners and um, figuring out the best possible outcome using that budget that they have. That's kind of a weird, weird challenge that I enjoy doing in my day-to-day -day practice. So. And I and I have to confess, with the dog with epilepsy, I was fortunate enough that she had pet insurance, and I know oh, without, without it, it would not have been possible. Yes. Um, so I would say anybody who is in the opportunity to be able to afford it, if you love your animals, it's a great it's a great investment. Absolutely, yeah. Good point. Yeah, we um, you know, right now where we're at, we don't. It, I think on the and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's it's definitely becoming more and more, um, you know, my, like. How do I say this? It seems like where we're at, we're like, you know, central in the Midwest. I feel like we're always behind. And I have colleagues on the coasts who everybody has pet insurance. Well, here in the Midwest, we are still constantly trying to educate and get owners to, you know, get on board with pet insurance. But sometimes it truly is like pulling teeth. Um, so we're always a little bit behind the eight ball. So I'm hoping here in the next years, we'll get more and more clients on pet insurance as part of, you know, the routine. And when people come in with puppies or newly adopted pets, as we try to mention it and get them on board with that, because that's huge. Absolutely. As you know, so. And actually just a, as a information for people who listen, the only way I learned about it is when my first dog had the cranial cruciate surgery, I actually saw a brochure and thought, oh, that would be a good idea. And when I got my next dog, the dog that ended up developing epilepsy after I'd had her for four years, I said, well, I'm going to buy the pet insurance because the amount that the premiums would cost for the seven years that my first dog lived before she had the cranial cruciate ligament, it's about the same. So it's like I can pay either a little bit each month or I can pay a lump sum. And then fortunately or unfortunately, she developed these two significant diseases. And very quickly, it's like, this was a really good decision. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many instances where, you know, hindsight's 2020, you know, and I feel for those owners who can't afford those, the luxury of a referral, but absolutely. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent on that one. So. And then you are more than just a vet. You also are an entrepreneur with wandering dog first aid. So how did you 
come up with this idea? You mentioned that you were a swimmer and then you were an equestrian. I know from reading your bio, you decided that drinking beer and hanging out in college after the first couple of years maybe wasn't the best thing for long-term quality of life. And so you dabbled in triathlons and some other things. And clearly from your social media that there are dogs in your life and your dogs are part of your life. I like to say dogs are not accoutrements. They're part of the family. And unfortunately, I rarely sit on my furniture because my dogs want me with them. And my one rule is I don't let them on the furniture. So how did you come up with the idea of wandering dog first aid? And when people ask you, what is this? What do you tell them? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, as you know, I, in my bio, I wrote about, um, you know, yeah. So there was, the, there was a lot of beer drinking in college. And so I started, I wasn't swimming. And to this day, it's like pulling teeth to get me to the pool. Because like, as you touched on earlier, yeah, it, um, swimmers either love it or hate it. So yeah, so I, uh, it's like pulling teeth to get me in the pool. I'd rather run. So in order to run off some of the beer, um, I started running in college. <clears throat> like did like a half iron or a half marathon, I think. Nothing crazy, like periodically. Um, periodically would enter just road races just for fun, just to keep me motivated to keep running. And then going away to vet school, um, you know, I think, and also too, I think I did have like an injury or something. So I was back in the pool. I found a master's swim team at Oklahoma state where I went to vet school. Um, and, um, so I, I started swimming with masters and then once my injury healed, my brother was in triathlon and, my roommate actually came home one summer or came back to school after a summer off and said that she'd done a sprint triathlon and I should really do it. And my brother had been trying to get me into it. So I was like, well, shoot, I'll just buy a bike. That's fine. So yeah, I started road cycling, but there was like on the Saturdays off when I wasn't studying, I was out spending hours on the road training because I got obsessed with triathlon. Like I was racing every other weekend. I was so obsessed. It's easy. It's easy to get addicted to these things, you know? <laughs> and, uh, um, so I was doing a lot of, I was on my bike a lot, um, increasing my, my distance. I started doing half Ironmans and then I did eventually sign up for a full Ironman during vet school. And yeah, it was a lot of time on the bike, you know, and there was that nagging guilt, like feeling bad for leaving my dogs at home, you know, especially I was studying all week and then training when I could, and they were kind of getting neglected. Um, I shouldn't say neglected, ignored rather, um, so, um, so eventually I just, I just bought a cheap hardtail mountain bike when I came home one summer from my local bike shop and I took it back to school with me and started taking my dogs on the trails and started trail riding some. So it was just a way that I could keep up my fitness level for my triathlons, but kind of include my dog in the fun too. And at that time I had a blue healer and she was a fantastic trail dog. Um, and so, so yeah, that's kind of how it all came about. Um, and that really, you know, I had always loved being outdoors, but that really, you know, spiked my passion for being outside with my dogs and they brought so much to the experience, you know, versus me just pedaling away on an open road, like having them there with me really brought so much to the experience. So, um, graduated college, you know, did a lot of graduated from vet school, a lot of hiking trails in our area. So just, um, being out there and hiking with them, I, you know, you're, when you're out in the woods, you start thinking and you're like, well, you know, certain things come up like certain minor ailments. Um, and I'm like, well, I know how to deal with this, but what if, you know, what if somebody with no medical background or medical knowledge knows how to deal, deal with this? So that's kind of where the first aid kit came, <clears throat> idea came about. Um, so I created that first aid kit about two years ago. And then, you know, as, as you start doing things, you start realizing, well, what if, you know, people don't really know how to use this first aid kit? So that's how 
Um, and I've been always, I've always liked teaching. So um, the education aspect is way more passionate. I'm way more passionate about the education aspect, which is a lot more fun. And then I can connect with people since I'm now extroverted. wasn't always the case, but I do love connecting with people and meeting new people. And then just, yeah, providing value to them and providing reassurance that, you know, they can, they can handle scary situations as, you know, as long as they're prepared and they have the education. And um, so that's kind of how it all transformed into what it is today. So. And I'm curious, what is the most serious injury or episode you've had with one of your dogs when you've been out on the trails? Well, my dog lit its tail on fire. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but yeah, that was, pro- that was, emo- he didn't get any serious injury, but that was really scary. Um, Cause he's, if you've seen pictures of him, he's very fluffy and yeah, we were, it was around dinner time. We were uh, camping out in Flagstaff and we had a roaring fire. It was an awesome fire and he was just excited and he just got a little bit too close and just swiped his tail right through it. And my parents were teasing me. They're like, are you going to do a blog post on this? And I was like, I, I probably have to eventually. So no, no harm was done, but we, and we got it out very quickly. Um, so I don't know if that counts. Um, but yeah, I mean, torn toenails, um, nothing like super serious, but it's been, I think everybody's dealt with a torn toenail or a pad injury. Um, torn toenails is one um, that the tail on fire was bad. And, you know, just like noticing that it's, a, he gets a little too hot and not nothing like he's full blown heat stroke, but just, he, you know, when it, he, he's a, the dog I have now, he's a Pyrenees mix. So I have to be very, very cautious because he's, um, he gets overheated easily. So, you know, just like showing signs that he's just a little too warm, especially in the humidity here. So always keeping on top of that. So I've been very fortunate and then nothing as serious has happened, um, but, and also too, I guess I should say, I just recently diagnosed him with Ehrlichia, which is a tick-borne disease. So we've got that now too. So store or the life of a veterinarian, um, which he, he's been on, obviously I'm very paranoid about ticks. I always pick him off of them and he was on a flea and tick preventative when he got it, but it's one of those things. No medication is a hundred percent, unfortunately. So, so. And I'm curious for people who are listening. I know I, one of my dogs, uh, tore her claw actually on Thanksgiving and it was a quick trip to the emergency vet for cauterization. And she was like, this is great. People are paying attention to me. <laughs> and I was, I was fortunate enough. She did it in the backyard, but for people who are listening, if yeah. you have a dog and you get out on the trails, it's a, as you said, it's a fairly common injury. What is the typical recommendation for somebody so they can get back to the trailhead and then take the dog into the vet for some, uh, quality care? Yeah, uh, well, those things can bleed like crazy. I'm sure you've experienced. I mean, That's why when I saw it, I said, we're going to the emergency clinic because if I trim it, I know it's going to bleed oh, yeah. a lot. It's, it's, it's alarming how much they can bleed from those things. I mean, so one of my one of my very first mentors, he's an old-time vet. He's retired now, but he always told me, he's like, Libby, if they tear a, to- if they tear a toenail, it's far away from their heart, <laughs> which is true. So even though even though there's a lot of blood and that looks alarming and you want to try to get it stopped, but just, just keep in mind that, well, it, it is, it's like Dr. Dick would say, Dr. Dick Calhoun, he would say it's far away from their heart, which is true. Um, that's a little more old school mentality, but I always recommend just applying a pressure app. If you, you can't, if it's really, really dirty, you can rinse it off with some water from your pack or something. And then just uh, obviously bandaging material, some type of bandaging material is almost always a must for first aid kit essentials when you're on the trail. So some type of bandage pressure wrap to get the bleeding to stop or at least slow until you can get to a veterinarian. Um, you know, and if they crack it at the base, I don't usually recommend 
trimming it yourself because most a lot of vets this these days will sedate them to trim those nails because it can be pretty painful just trimming it because you essentially you do you have to cut it off where it's broken and that's pretty far up the nail bed um so and then sometimes depending on the situation sometimes they'll need some antibiotics because obviously that'd be a nasty infection but yeah essentially just keeping it clean and then applying a pressure wrap um to slow or stop the bleeding so and I know one of the things that you have is, as you said, you have this first aid kit that you can buy for your dog. And I have to confess, I purchased a first aid kit for my dogs prior to learning about you. Oh, and, no sweat. <laughs> and, and then in addition, once I started to realize my dog with epilepsy could potentially have a seizure when we were out on the trails, there was a company that actually sells a sling so that if your dog is immobilized or unable to walk, you can basically carry it almost like a fanny pack or a knapsack. <laughs> so I actually carry that. But I'm curious with uh, with your first aid kit. The, it's called the Trail Dog Rescue Kit. We'll make sure that we have links in the show notes. When you sat down and said, you know, I know these things and I know people can benefit from it. One of the things I noticed is you have a really nice bag with it. So it's not something that's going to fall apart. How did you come up with these are the things that I think are important. These are the things that I'm not going to put in there. Right. That's, yeah. Great question. Cause that, that was a hard time I spent. That was hard. I spent a lot of time thinking about what's put in there. And I guess it just boils down to like, since it's, since it's specifically for, um, you know, being out on the trail or camping, um, I tried to make it the most common trail injury. So it's obviously not all inclusive in that, like, it's not, we're not going to be dealing with household toxicities out on the trail or something like that. Like I didn't put hydrogen peroxide in there for that reason. Um, but you know, so I guess, so what going back to that, like torn toenails, abrasions, lacerations, pad injuries, um, eye injuries, you know, if they get something in their eye, um, you know, essentially are probably in all reality, the most common things that you're going to deal with on the trail. Um, so essentially you have to be able to safely restrain your dog. So there's an extra leash provided, which can also double as a muzzle. Um, there's all the bandaging material you need. Um, the Carolix roll gauze that's in there is also really good for hemorrhage control. I learned about that from a military veterinarian um, who uses uses that particular type of roll gauze in um, tactical field care. And he's, he, he contends that that particular type of roll gauze is almost just as good as like combat, combat gauze, you know, that stuff that's um, impregnated with hemostatic agents. So... Um, so if you have like a, a really severe bleeding laceration, that's going to cover you there along with the bandaging materials and the medical tape. And I mean, the medical tape and vet, between medical tape and vet wrap, you can, you can essentially fix anything, right? That's like the duct tape of veterinary medicine is vet wrap. Um, but also things too, like, you know, for like worst case scenario, like these are things I, I pray nobody ever encounters. But like if you do have like a chest wall injury, you know, you can get really crafty and use the bags in the kit also too, to you like use that as like a chest seal, you know? So it just, if, and that, that's what I find that if in most of these situations that are scary, you know, you get crafty real quick, or at least that's the point where I want to get people to where they can really hone in on what's important and use what they have in the kit, whatever that might look like to help them. Um, so essentially I feel like you always had, should have something sharp. So there are bandaging scissors in there. Um, you should always have something sharp on you when you're in the woods, right? Like, you know, if it's not a knife, it's some bandaging scissors. Um, the, the, hem the hemostats have multiple uses, <clears throat> you know, even something like picking out a tick, you can use the hemostats that way. Um, 
And then there's also clotting powder for torn toenails and whatnot, um, and can be used cautiously in more like superficial wounds. But, and also to the eye flush, because, um, you know, I, I believe that also to this military veterinarian says that, you know, basically we're preserving life, limb, and eyesight. Um, that is what first aid is, especially when it comes to like working dogs in a tactical situation. So, um, you know, there's eye flush, sterile eye flush in there, but it's a big enough bottle that you could also potentially use it to, it's like sterile, so you could potentially use it to flush out wounds. So I feel like between all of those items, you know, they're multi-use items when you have, when space and weight and, you know, carrying capacity out on the trailer are concerned. And you could be probably even for your purposes, whatever that might look like, you could probably even fine tune it more and eliminate some of those things. Like you might not need bandaging scissors if you carry a pocket knife on you. Um, like when we're backpacking and I, when we're backpacking, I don't take all that stuff with me. You know, I just take, you know, something sharp, bandaging material, um, and some dog-specific pain medications, which, you know, obviously you have, a pr you have to have a prescription for that. Oh, and also to like Benadryl and just stuff to keep wounds clean and for any potential allergic reactions and things like that. So, so essentially I tried to keep it to what you're most likely in to encounter in the woods or wilderness, wherever you are. So... And I have two things that I noticed that I really like is, first of all, you kept it at a reasonable size. As you say on your website, it weighs about a pound. And the other thing that I think is really important is the fact that it is waterproof. That's the one thing I have mine inside a Ziploc bag because I looked at it and said, well, I'm out in the woods. And if it rains, it doesn't really matter because I'm going to get wet. My dogs are going to go, oh, this is great. Let it rain a little bit harder. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I stumbled across this company called Locksack. Um, and was just really impressed with them and they, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. These bags are scuba certified. So, um, you know, so inside the bag, everything, yes, is in a waterproof lock sack bag, um, scuba certified. They're made in the USA. Um, so that's a really good company. They even make, um, they even make bags that they claim are, um, bear scent proof, which kind of makes me nervous. I don't know if I try it out, but, uh, they, they say that, you know, so it's, it's just interesting, but, um, yeah, they they have really good stuff. So. And for somebody who sees this and realizes they need a first aid kit, what's the expiration date on some of these things? You know, you buy the kit and obviously some things have ex expiration dates about how long do they have before they'll have to update those things? Sure. It's going to vary. Um, it's going to vary. And I shouldn't say this either, but most medications are okay, slightly past the expiration date. Um, you know, in a, in a, like if you're in a crisis situation and your meds are expired, you know, I would say go ahead and give it anyways. But yeah, it's just going to vary like Benadryl. It depends on when you buy it, but Benadryl typically, oh shoot, I think that's like a two year shelf life or so. So, and also too, like if you keep your equipment in like a hot vehicle, like if you always have one in your truck, which is absolutely a good thing to do, some of those adhesives and the vet wrap can get sticky. So it's just a good idea to check them at like, you know, you know, once a year, maybe like after, after the summer is over, just to make sure that, you know, you can still the adhesives are still sticky and the vet wrap isn't like all mushed together because it does get that way if it's in a hot vehicle. So I would say just keeping it up, like just keeping an eye on things, maybe every six months to a year, just to make sure everything is still, you know, um, not expired and still usable. So. And I know I have for my business uh, on the side is personal training. I have an AED that periodically needs to be reviewed. And I was actually, in the place today, getting it reviewed and getting the battery checked and the 
gentleman said, now you, you did take a class to learn how to do this. So I think what's neat, what you're doing is not only are you selling a first aid kit, you're not saying here's a first aid kit, go away. You also have a first aid field guide that people can take it. So you mentioned your passion for education, which came first, putting together the kit or saying, hey, I'm going to put together this field guide to teach people things that they might need to do so that they can keep their dog alive and get them back to civilization or back to where a vet can give more significant or more detailed care. Sure. I, yeah. The field, I would say, I don't know if this is a fair answer, but really they, they came about at the same time. Like as I was, as I was putting together the materials in the kit, I guess that's when I started to realize, well, I need something in there that states how to use all these different things. And like, so in the back of that kit, I do have like a detailed list of what everything is in the kit and potential uses, which, um, you know, or, you know, potential items that can be used in certain ways. Um, and like the dose of the Benadryls back, back in the back of the, the manual. So I guess it all kind of unfolded at the same time as I was making my list of what I knew I wanted in there. And then, you know, I quickly then also with that realized the need for something, you know, short, um, and water and water resistant and something that's not in a like not binded it's, it's in a spiral bound because what good is it if it's not staying on the right page right if if all if your if your hands are you know occupied taking care of your dog so it all kind of unfolded at the same time to be honest so and uh, you, you've also expanded beyond that you also have a blog that gives various uh, health I guess health tips is the wrong thing first aid tips for dogs in different situations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I try, I update it weekly. Um, you know, it's every, it covers everything from, you know, basically I get the same questions, um, over and over again, which I love, but I love getting those questions because it just solidifies the need that, you know, the, the need for that knowledge and for that education being out on the web. So I try to stick to like, I, a lot of my inspiration on those blog posts have come from direct messages and questions from people. And then also to like, I do, try, I, I do, I do love, talking about mindset. And I think, you know, if you can't implement first aid knowledge, um, because your mindset's a little off, I think that's another really important area to address. So I do try to incorporate some mindset, um, practices with, along with my, you know, first aid tips and whatnot. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that came about. You gave us some good information on dealing with dogs with a torn claw. You mentioned that with your current dog, you have to be more concerned about heat. I know when I take my dogs out, uh, I try to get them in the shade. I actually carry, they have their own Nalgene bottle and they can drink out of the bottle. And I'll, bra I'll brag on Labradors because I've had, uh, I'm now on my fourth Labrador. Every single one of them without training has figured out how to drink out of the bottle. But when somebody who maybe is a new dog owner or isn't familiar or doesn't recognize that dogs don't respond to heat as well as most humans do, what are some tips or clues that people can look for to make sure that their dogs are not overheating? Oh, yeah, that's a great question, especially this time of year. Um, yeah, I guess the important, um, the important note here, too, is that it's all, it's all about prevention because once you get to the signs where severe heat stroke is taking place, a lot of the damage is done or is, you know, it's a very, it happens so quickly. It progresses so, so rapidly. So looking for those very, very first stages of heat stress um, is so, so important. And it could, it, and ultimately too, like just knowing your own dog. Um, so I really, rec I always, 
I'm always talking about, you know, performing physical exams on your own dogs. So you know what's normal for them and you know that going out into the woods and then some more mild, mild heat stress symptoms where, you know, you need to really start backing off, backing off or start heading back to the truck or seeking shade or lots of offering lots of water are, um, you know, something as simple as like, they might just be like slowing down, um, their pant might change and that their we call it their smile, their smile might get wider, their tongue starts to flatten and it starts to hang lower. Um, their saliva can change a little bit too. Their saliva can become a little bit more thick. Um, you know, taking a temperature isn't the most sensitive way to address heat stress because working dogs can actually safely go up to like 105 degrees and not experience a heat stroke. So I wouldn't recommend that so much, but just really knowing your dog and also too like um, disobedience. If your dog is really well behaved, he just isn't acting like he's listening to you or he's shade seeking, um, lagging behind, um, their tail might just sink lower, um, their head might sink lower. Those are all like set more subtle symptoms that, you know, could indicate that your dog is at the beginning of something like heat stress. So. And I know with my dogs, I currently have a yellow lab puppy, but all my other labs have been dark colored. And I know they do much, much better in the warmer temperatures. If I keep them out of the sun, if I can get them, if I can get them in the woods, they're good to do something to 70, 75 degrees. This is again, my experience with them. Mm -hmm. If they're in, if they're in the sun, it's kind of like, if it gets above 60 degrees, we're good for about 20 minutes and then we're done. Oh yeah. It makes a huge difference in humidity as well. Um, I don't know. Does it get very humid in Pittsburgh? It gets fairly humid, humid, but my story that I tell my first dog, which was a black lab I got when I lived in Florida and she never had a walk longer than 25 minutes because yeah. of the heat and humidity. Oh, yeah. And then when she got up here and discovered snow, she thought it was the best thing that ever happened. <laughs> oh gosh. Funny. And I'm interested to go the opposite end of the spectrum from heat mm -hmm. to cold because I know where you live and where I live, you get snow in the winter. And yeah. I know some people say, well, if it gets below 30 degrees, I don't take them out. And I found my dogs really like the colder weather down to about five or 10 degrees, taking care mm -hmm. to protect their paws. What are some signs or things that people can know when it's too cold for their dog? Obviously, recognizing that some dogs just are not well suited for cold weather, just like some dogs are not well suited for hot weather. Oh yeah. No, good question too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, obviously I think most dogs would prefer colder weather. You and I, we have, yeah, my, like being having a Pyrenees, the colder weather is his jam. That's like, that's when he gets out and he gets to run the trails with me the most actually. So, um, I had to buy a fat bike for him, poor guy. So that could, <laughs> poor, poor thing, all the sacrifices I make for him. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, um, I would say, yeah, the thinner coated breeds, the toy breeds, you know, those guys they're, you know, and, and once again, it comes down to knowing your own dog. Um, you know, like the, you know, if they have a thinner hair coat, obviously they're just not going to be as well suited for that kind of temperature range. Most of them are pretty hardy. Um, you know, if you have like, you know, your Labrador, my Pyrenees, um, in there, they do well in the winter, then yeah, you do have to start worrying about potential, you know, paw, um, the, the ice and whatnot and the, the ice and the, the, the snow can be compact, can get compacted between their pads and between their, their toes. And that can obviously cause some irritation and some pain. So that's something to look out for. And some people do, do prefer booties um, in those types of weather. Um, honestly, my dog does really well in the winter with his pads. Um, he's also, but he's got really tough pads. I've never had to put booties on him. Um, so it really, it just comes down to knowing your own dog, you know, cause there's so many variations and needs based on breed and temperament and 
you know, so it's really going to be highly variable from, from dog to dog. But um, yeah, some dogs can get really irritated skin between their paw pads with the ice and the, the, the snow when it gets like that clumpy snow. Um, but ultimately, yeah, just knowing your dog and knowing what their, what their, their, their t comfortable temperature range is. So. And I'm curious, switching back to the heat, I know I've, I've looked at, and there are companies that sell, uh, I think they're called wet vests where you take mm -hmm. a vest and it's wet. And what it does is it helps cool the dog with evaporative cooling since dogs obviously don't sweat as well as we do. Have you had any experience with those with the caveat, of course, that if it's warm out, the dog obviously is not going to behave or be able to exercise as long as it would if it's cooler out. Yeah, I think there was a study done at some point where they, um, I'm remembering this correctly because I did read up on that. I have not used, I've personally not used a cooling vest on my dog. Um, but I think they did a, do a study in working dogs where they did a cooling vest versus a regular working vest versus nothing at all. And to be honest, I, if I remember correctly, and this might be an outdated study, they might've improved them since this, this, um, per, this study part was um, performed, but um, they kind of came to the conclusion that there wasn't a huge difference in the cooling vest versus wearing their tactical, you know, their tactical vest. There wasn't this huge difference. But like I said, I say I don't have a whole lot of personal experience with that. I know lots of people do use cooling vests and swear by them and love them. Um, but ultimately, it's gonna it's it's gonna come down to just really even despite having a cooling vest on, just keeping a really really close funnel, watching for those those mild symptoms of heat stress, so you can take action before before it's too late. Because um, once you get to the progressed heat stress symptoms, it's it can get ugly. So um, I I'm always. Um, I, I, I feel like most of my audience is intelligent. They're very intelligent people, but it's like, you know, you, you know, it's just, I state all these things with caution because I don't want people to get overly confident because their, their dog is wearing a cooling vest. So, um, but yeah, and it is nice that I, I do know some of them provide cool, cool to the axil, like, so I say axillary region, you know, their armpits and whatnot, which is a great area to cool them off. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those things sometimes it's still too hot, even despite the cooling vests. Yeah. We've been talking with Dr. Libby Fort. She is a veterinary physician. She also is the founder and owner of Wandering Dog First Aid. She is a firm believer that dogs are part of your lifestyle. And I think from looking at her social media pictures, she and I both believe the same thing about our dogs. They are part of our activity, not something that we leave at home as accoutrements. Dr. Ford, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live, and this will almost certainly appear on our FitLab Pittsburgh podcast, explaining how you can help keep your dog safe. We're going to have show notes with links to the Wandering Dog website. If you don't have a first aid kit for your dog and you take your dog out there, I highly recommend having one. And as Dr. Ford said, learning how to use the equipment or the tools that are in it because you never want to be in a situation where your dog has fallen on a bush or something like that and realized I'm five miles from the trailhead and I don't know how I'm going to get it back. Dr. Ford, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. 
Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.